In the great halls of USA Today, we assemble the newsroom's mightiest nerds. Brett Molina. I'm so sorry for the producer of this podcast. <laughs> Kelly Lawler. I will fight you on it. Brian Truitt. Spoiler town! <laughs> Together, they form The Mothership. Their mission? To harness their collective encyclopedic knowledge of nerdiness in all its forms. To dissect every trailer, plot twist, and game released for the geekiest of fans. The Mothership, saving the universe from bad comic book adaptations every Friday. All aboard the Mothership, the Geek Culture Podcast from the USA Today Network. Thank you so much for joining us, and happy Friday, friends. Happy Friday! Let's meet the crew. I'm Brett Molina. I play video games, and what's getting me through this week is... um, So I wrote kind of a mini-review on a new Kindle Fire... I believe it's called the Kindle HD 10 Plus that is available now. You can read about it on tech.usatoday.com. As part of my testing of the tablet, um, I decided to read um, Captain America, The Winter Soldier Volume 1, which is a graphic novel that is um, that kind of chronicles the Ed Brubaker run um, that focuses on Cap and brings us the Winter Soldier and all that fun stuff. Um it was really interesting to read. I did not grow up reading a lot of Cap when I was younger, and I always kind of thought Cap was lame, and part of that was just because I liked X-Men and Spider-Man way more, and I just thought Captain America was a cheese ball a little bit, and from the couple issues I did read of his, I just never was a fan. And I read Winter Soldier, and I really liked it. I thought it was a really good run. I only have read well, Volume 1 so far, but I really like it, and I didn't think I was going to like it as much as I did, so... I'm very much looking forward to reading volume two and the rest of these. And these are old. They've been out a while. I think it's probably like, I want to say nine, 10 years ago, this run came out, but um, it's, uh, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, looking forward to reading more. See, I was the opposite. Captain America was what got me into superhero comics in like, you know, that those mid eighties. And then I got into like Spider-Man and, you know, reluctantly into X-Men after that. Um, but yeah, those are those cat, those Captain America stories. Those were my jam. Um, I just thought he was coolest MF forever. Um, but yeah, but like the the but that was the big thing, you know. When the 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 Winter Soldier stuff when that happened, that was huge because Bucky's been dead the whole time, and it was like it was a big deal that all of a sudden like his best friend who'd been dead the whole time is suddenly this like you know brainwashed assassin that he's got to deal with. I mean, that was like, that was huge. It was huge when it happened. Yeah. And it's funny reading it because you know it's coming and it's mm-hmm. still like very interesting to read because you're like, well, what's, how's Cap going to react to this? Because they're obviously holding it close to the vest. And I don't even, I don't even know if he knows by the end of the first volume of the graphic novel. I have to double check. But um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it is really fun to read. And yeah, I, I, you know, the thing with me with Cap is I didn't really get into Cap until like Ultimates came out, which was that Mark Millar run where they kind of gave him a little more of an edge mm-hmm. than what he had in like 80s, 90s. So that's when I started to get a lot more interested in Cap because he seemed a little more grizz, you know, he seemed a little more kind of suffering the effects of war and stuff like that. And I like that they touched on that a little more in the 2000s. And they do that, too, in this um, this Winter Soldier run as well. But um yeah, it, it it definitely makes me want to read more Cap 
graphic novels definitely well and 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 too you know kind of the when you go back and and read you know after after falcon and winter soldier it's really interesting to go back and read you know the cat no more run in the 80s when you know he became nomad for a bit and you know john walker became captain america that was that was a really cool run and they've 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 taken a lot from like the old cap stuff for the movies but it was funny when like winter soldier the movie came out everybody's like oh who's the winter soldier i'm like it's Bucky guys. It's totally Bucky. <laughs> and it's just like, I, have you been reading? And I remember being on set. I'm like, I'm talking to Kevin Feige about like, oh yeah, I know. I t- totally know what's going to happen, you know, but like no one else, you know, like the people, the people, you know, the non-comic book people have like no idea. So it, that was kind of a cool thing. I'm Brian Truitt. I watch movies. And um, so I have, I have a comics thing that's getting me through this week too. Um, so I have a, I have not gone back to read because IDW's been doing um, since like 2010. Um, the original GI Joe Marvel comics went to 155, you know, written by Larry Hama, and then it just stopped. It got they got canceled or whatever. So in 2010, IDW let Larry Hama pick up where he left off with like 155 and a half issue 155 and a half and then keep going on you know his 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 storyline picking up where he left off while while IDW did other GI Joe projects which have, they've kind of come and gone I read some of those but I never read the the Hama thing so I've gone back um thanks to Comicsology Unlimited I I'm kind of reading you know 156 and on like kind of rereading the last 10 years of Larry Hama G.I. Joe comics. And it's really fu- it's really cool because, you know, it's it's a lot like the 80s stuff I grew up with where, like, they all have, you know, a lot of military lingo, a lot of, like, talk about, you know, specific kinds of machine guns and, you know, tanks and stuff. And, like, it's – but it, it's, it's – it's, there's a realistic edge to it. That, that was a great thing that Hama always – Hama was a veteran himself, and he always – he always really brought a realistic edge to everything he did that he did with GI Joe, and it's interesting to kind of see that melded with like you know Doctor Mindbender's brainwave scanner and like Cobra taking over like entire cities to be their headquarters, their secret headquarters, and like you know, that everyone kind of knows about, but no one does except for like the GI Joe team somehow. And the GI Joe team's got like a pit, like a, you know, they got like a whole base underneath like the Utah desert that they move every so often. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy and bonkers, but like, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's like old school GI Joe in a really cool way. If you like that sort of thing. Okay. Two questions. At any point, does Cobra attempt to start its own metal band to subliminally control the population? Not yet, but I, I'm again. I'm only I, like I've I've gone through about three or four volume trade pay, trade paperback volumes of the, of going back from when he when he restarted it up, and I think Joe, like so Cobra had taken over like this Atlantic Beach Pier or like a East Coast Beach Pier. And that didn't go well. So now they're like relocated to like California, a sub, a sub, the suburbs of California, and they've they've taken over that. So it's they have not they have not started a rock band yet. But there's like a lot of global int- global intrigue and taking over of California suburbs. Also, is there at any point a time where the GI Joes 
are mobilizing because they are afraid of a top secret enemy known as the Viper, but they find out it's just someone talking about a window wiper <laughs> and they have just a really thick accent. <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, good. pretty much. Pretty much okay. lots, still lots of brain, like random brainwashing, a lot of, a lot of ninjas. Um, there's some robot ninjas that show up that are controlled by like this this runaway AI. It's like cyborgs. Yeah, it's 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 nuts, but nuts in a good way. Ah, well, there you go. Uh, if this is your first time listening to us, welcome. New episodes of the Mothership drop every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, it would be awesome if you could write a quick review about the show. By doing that, you help other fans who love nerdy pop culture find us. And as a bonus, you get a shout out on the next episode. So try it out. Let us know what you want to hear from us moving forward. Don't forget, along with a review, you can also get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Mothership Pod, or you can email us to MothershipPod at USAToday.com. Here is a clip with a very familiar theme. Listen. You're a man of many talents. The Ark. It is something that man was not meant to disturb. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. Isn't he an Jones? Let her go. Why did it have to be snakes? I'm going after that truck. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. That was a clip from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the legendary Steven Spielberg action adventure starring Harrison Ford as globetrotting archaeologist Indiana Jones that released 40 years ago this Saturday. And just in time for the anniversary, you can now order a collection of the Indiana Jones movies in 4K Blu-ray, which features Raiders, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Last Crusade and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. In honor of that release and the anniversary, this week's special guest is Paul Freeman, who played Indy's arch rival, Rene Balak. But before we get to our conversation with him, we're going to talk about our own memories of Raiders of the Lost Ark and favorite moments in this iconic franchise starter. Okay, Brian, when did you first see Raiders of the Lost Ark? So I did not see it when it first came out in the theater. I watched it. It would have had to have been on VHS in 19... It came out in in nineteen like November 1983 on VHS. So I must have like I must have read it from like Errol's or like the the local you know to you know videotape rental joint like around then because i had seen raiders of the lost ark by the time indiana jones and the temple doom came doom came out in 84 so and i was kind of excited about seeing it, and then my, my parents found out about the whole heart getting ripped out scene and they wouldn't let me watch temple doom which 
I was not happy about. But I but I had definitely seen Raiders Lark Lost Ark by then. Um and I absolutely loved it. Uh somehow though, I, I guess either my mom or dad I mean, it would have to have been my dad. I think he saw it in the theater somehow. I don't know how. But he, or he knew about it because they wouldn't you know, I always had to hide my eyes at the face melt, the Nazi face melting scene. Whenever that came on. Whenever I watched it, I would have to hide my eyes until like some years later when like finally I got I got to watch that awesome scene that I and I talked to Paul about it um, that you'll hear later. Um, but yeah, that's just that scene. That scene is bonkers. The whole movie, like, I just love it so much. And I, I watched it like twice again for work last week for work, which was cool um, because like it, it'll show up on Paramount Network. All the time. Every time it comes on, I'll put it on and it drives my wife crazy. But like, I, I can never watch it enough times. It's it is. It, I I I feel the dreams is my my favorite movie of all time. But Raiders has got to be like number two. It is it is the perfect action film. It's funny you talk about the uh, trajectory of going from the theater to uh, VHS because. Back when we were younger, I, I, I remember vividly, like, you'd have a movie come out in, like, the main theater, and then probably six months to eight months later, it would be in, like, a dollar theater where you'd go for, like, a dollar and watch it. Mm-hmm. Like, you wouldn't get to watch it at home, I think, until two, three years after it was out in theaters, which today seems insane. But um, I actually didn't watch it till I was much older, and it was on, like, regular TV. So this was, like, several years out because... Obviously, back then, it took like a few years before stuff would actually just appear on TV, you know, for free as opposed to, you know, right. like an HBO or even, you know, renting at a video store. Um, I mean, there's so many scenes in that movie that are hard to forget. And I feel like they're staples. If you look at like action movies in general, I mean, they're kind of those scenes that like when you think of action movies, and you think of like the classic Hollywood stuff like those are the scenes that come right up the boulder um you know the the scene where he's trying to escape the temple and stuff uh you talked about the face melting and stuff at the end but that's such a classic scene um mm-hmm. you know when he's in the pit with all the snakes and stuff like that um there're just so many really great moments in that movie and i think that's part why it has lasted so long and i think people still talk about it um the other thing it made me think of too is I think people, I don't know if people still remember this, but George Lucas, uh, you know, wrote the story for that or he, you know, he, he played a role in the story for Indiana Jones and Mm -hmm. it's, I feel like people still look at Lucas as Star Wars guy and forget that he did all this. And I mean, this is just as, I mean, as far as like an iconic franchise, I mean, I, I don't think it is hit like a stratosphere like Star Wars, but it's definitely way up there. I mean, I, I would, I would put, I would put, I, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a better movie than Star Wars. Really? Because oh yeah, I would. Oh yes, because I because I think um, I don't know if that's a hot take. It is um, now <laughs> because Empire, Empire Strikes Back is better than Star Wars. But you know, I I think just because you know it is it is it is not just Spielberg, but it's and not just George Lucas. It is Lucas and Spielberg. It is two geniuses uniting for this thing, and like working together and creating this. You know. It's just absolutely magnificent piece of piece of art, and you know it's it's interesting because, like you mentioned, I think as a kid, there's certain things that like stand out to you, and so you know, and and you know enough stuff that, like and, and some enough adult stuff where it feels kind of like you're, you're seeing something you shouldn't, 
you know, when you see it, like, oh, I shouldn't be watching this, even though it's PG. And it should probably, it would have been like PG-13, you know, by the time Temple of Doom came out. But, it, you know, when it came out, it was PG. Um, but like, but as an adult, though, you, you know, a lot of, a lot of you, you see different things about the movie and you're impressed by different things. You know, there there's the scene where, um, you know, when we originally meet, Marion, who's played by Karen Allen, you know, she's drinking guys under the table at her bar in Nepal. And it's cool to see that scene play out again with Belloc when, you know, she's trying to like, because she's got a tolerance. And she's like, oh, okay, I'm going to escape by getting him stinking drunk. But he's he uses his own liquor. So, so her plan totally fails because she's not used to his liquor, his family liquor. So she gets blind drunk and she can't, you know, and she tries to escape, but then she's too drunk to get out of it. Um, and we, uh, we talk, you know, you're going to hear my conversation with Paul where we get into how that scene happened. But that's, I mean, that's just a great, um, you know, it's just, it's a great mirror of the earlier scene. It's, it's a nice, um, playback to that. And it's funny too, because then, you know, she tries to escape, doesn't work. Nazis get her. She gets thrown into the, the pit, pit of snakes with, with Indy. And meanwhile, you know, they, you know, Bullock's trying to, to get with Mar- Marion. That's obvious. And gives her this white, white, really nice white dress to wear. So, you know, she gets thrown into the pits with Andy. Andy's like surrounded by all these snakes. Like his worst weakness, the thing he hates most in the world. And like for a moment, he like he forgets all the snakes. He's like, oh, did he give you that white dress? You know, it was just like there's this like moment of like jealousy absolute jealousy and it's like he's like gonna die he's surrounded by snakes and he's like pissed off that like like his archaeology arch rival guy gave his woman you gave this his his ex-girlfriend a white dress you know it's like little things like that like you know as an adult they really spark because you're like you know it's like yeah you know that would that would happen like in certain death that dude would be like Come on now. What happened? What happened to you? What happened? What just happened here? You know? I don't know. I think that kind of signals his confidence a little bit because I feel like he is, you know, he he always seemed like the character that was thrust into all these crazy situations. And he just kind of, you know, I think it was easy for him to get distracted by that because he's like, well, I'm going to get out of this eventually. It's just a matter of how and when, not if. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> so, you know, like you see the scene with the with the bolt, you know, there's the scene. I think it's with um, Alfred Molina where he's um, he's got, he, you know, they they go in and he gets the little statue and he's like throwing the statue and he throws it and then he runs off and takes the whip with him. And so he's just kind of shaking his head like, OK, and still gets out anyway. It's just one. Of, I, he always kind of had that look about him like. I am going to get out of this. It's just a matter of how I'm going to get out of this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm going to get beat up a lot, but I'm probably going to still somehow get out of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like that meme with the dog and the the house is burning all around. He's like, this is fine. That's right. kind of what Indiana Jones is in a way. Right. Um, okay, enough from us. Let's hear from our special guest this week, Paul Freeman. He played Renee Belloc. Belloc and uh, he talks about Raiders of the Lost Ark and a whole lot of other fun stuff. Let's listen. Hey, Paul. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for taking time. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. So when's the, when's the last time you watched Raiders? Has it, has it been a while? Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, not so long. I would say three or four years ago. Okay. 
probably something like that. It always yeah. surprises me. I'm always taken aback by the speed of the storytelling and by the humour and also the great risk he took with the storytelling of doing this terrific, adventurous beginning and then leaving it very slowly to develop during the next few scenes, quite a few scenes before you finally got into the adventure again. It's a brave piece of storytelling, I think. So, so you know, take, take us back to the beginning. You know, what was your first impression reading the script that first time? Well, I was reading the script on the floor of uh, George Lucas's. No, they were on the floor. Lucas and Stephen were on the floor listening to one of the early cape, uh, tape cassettes. And uh, as I walked in to meet them, they said, come and listen to this. So we all got down on the floor because they had, do you remember, you could, you're probably too young, you could get separate speakers that fitted to this cassette. So instead of the horrible original sound, you got really good sound. Right. We were all knocked out of this. And, and, and by the way, they said, do you want to read the script? I said, well, yeah, sure, I'd love to. <laughs> they said, well, go in the other room. Well, they lay, still lay on the floor listening to this thing. I went in the other room and read the script. And by the time I got to the bit where the uh, date is thrown in the air and the monkey gets poisoned by it, I thought, this is a script I've got to get do. It's just so funny. What was that first meeting with George and, and Stephen like? I mean, kind of, did you, did you have a, did you get, you know, kind of what they had in store for you at that moment or were they still kind of figuring it out? No, I think they, you know, they're super cool. I think there's, they was, they were still figuring it out because um, for instance, Stephen never asked me then whether I could do a French accent. And it wasn't until he said, I got the part. We were about to start shooting in, because um, I first met them in, in LA. This um, office they had was on the uh, old Universal set. And it was the Egg Marketing Board office. But when we got back to England and we're going to start shooting, Stephen suddenly called me in a couple of days before and said he wanted to have a meeting with me. I said, oh, God, this is it. They're going to choose somebody else. And he just said... I didn't ask you if you can do a French accent. And I said, well, yeah. I said, what will you do? And I said, well, I want to start talking a little bit like this and a little bit like that. And he said, oh, that's fine. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> in fact, that was the only bit of sort of quasi-research I did. So in, in that opening, you know, where Balak gets the idol from Andy, he's very cool about the whole thing, you know, albeit very sweaty. You know, was that stunt sweat or were you just that hot all the time? You know, I have a very strange myth. You know, that shot was those those Hawaiian sequences were the last things we filmed. Okay. Yeah, you know, we filmed all this stuff in Elstree first, and then we went to Tunisia to do the desert stuff. And the last weeks, a couple of weeks, were spent in Hawaii filming that mountain business. And I don't know if you know, but an enormous number of people got quite sick during the shoot from the uh, sort of dysentery. Mm -hmm. And I got sick on the plane going to Hawaii. Oh, geez. So I spent a lot of that time in Hawaii just not wanting to throw up. Throw up. But I think if I, if I was looking pretty sweaty, it might have been the results of the uh, dysentery rather than anything else. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine. You, you, finally get to, you finally get to paradise and you feel, like, feel terrible. I know. And the other thing about it was that we were in a hotel. I remember vividly, I remember nothing about the architecture, but I remember these enormous banquets of food that would come up. Hawaiian food piled high on the table, and I couldn't eat any of it. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> to go back someday. You know, and, and Balak tells Indy, you know, he's, he's, quote, you know, a shadowy reflection of you. Yeah. Uh, but did you have a deeper reading of him than that? 
more than just like the bad Indiana Jones, but kind of like, you know, stuff we didn't see in terms of his backstory and where he'd been and everything. I, it's rather shocking to say it, but I didn't do any of that sort of preparation at all. I just thought it's the story of these, these two men. It, they don't necessarily have to act alike or seem alike. It's enough that their motivation is the same. I mean, it was sort of revealed in the, the scene where he finally captures the ark, doesn't it? In, mm-hmm. the, in the desert there, you know, about saying, well, this, what we are after is this artifact because it is history. Right. Yeah, they're a part of history, and this is history. And we are amoral enough to accept that as reason enough as archaeologists to carry on stealing. Funnily enough, when I've been talking about the movie recently, because I've, I also did a film a few years ago about the um, Elgin marbles, it's more apparent than ever that an enormous amount, there's a big conversation going on in museums all over the world about returning stuff that was stolen. The, the the drinking scene with Karen, um, yeah. did you guys have some freedom in figuring, figuring that out? And what, you know? Uh, we had a lot of freedom. It's nice you should ask. Um, when we arrived, Stephen Sidlam, uh, he wasn't very keen, he wasn't very uh, pleased with the way this, that particular scene had been scripted. It wasn't there's anything wrong with it. It just it wasn't fulfilled enough. So he said, would you and Karen go away and work on this? improvise around it and see what you can do and come back and show me. So uh, we were very happy to do that. Both Karen and I had started off as theatre actors. Mm-hmm. So he said, go away and improvise, work on it yourselves. And we did. And he was very pleased with what we did. And I, I think it all stayed in the movie. That scene is the scene that we came up with. I mean, there was an original scene written. It just wasn't fully developed. What did you, what did you like working, you know, in, in working with Karen and, you know, not only in that scene, but in other scenes, you know, what, what, what was your big takeaway about her? You know, what she did, you know, what was, what was your impression to her? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Karen. In fact, I've only just, I was just writing a letter to her before we went on to do this because she's coming over to London later on in the year. So we're planning to get together. Uh, we've stayed friends ever since. We don't see each other very much, but we keep in touch. I think she's a phenomenal actress, and I think she did such a superb job. She she really played that role to the hilt like it was a Catherine Hepburn role, and she, mm-hmm. she understood that, and she knew how to do that. Plus, the great thing about being able to do all the physical stuff as well as the wit, mm-hmm. it's such a wicked sense of humor, and such a, such a beautiful girl, too, a beautiful woman. So, and I want to talk to you about the face-melting scene. Um, yeah. Because I, I feel like, you know, kind of that's that's the one scene, you know, this is like it's the one scene why I couldn't watch it as a kid because my parents were like, you can't watch this as a kid. You know, I feel like a lot of my generation, we couldn't watch it until we got to a certain age. And finally, we could watch this great movie finally because we, we could watch the face. Melt, you know? Was it a disappointment when you finally? Oh, no, it? no, no, it's great. Um, oh. But to, and just filming that scene. What you know, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that's probably added in later. But what was that scene like, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant in front of you, you and all these robes, Nazi flags everywhere? You know, what was it, what was filming that scene like? Bizarre, because this was the very early days of the sort of special effects thing that became green screen and is now done everywhere, you know. So we, in fact, just had to imagine it while we were at the scene over the Ark, uh, Ronnie and Wolf and I, Stephen was just yelling at us. Look this way, look up, look down. You're hor- it's horrible, it's coming at you. It's moved away, it's coming over to the left. Keep looking. I know. <laughs> we were just reacting like that instantly. 
with no idea what we were looking at. But the, in people, it's funny, people's reactions are either twofold. They used to say, how did they do that with your head? As if, you know, how surprising I've still got a head. Right. And, or they say, what was inside the ark? Well, there was a bit of sand because we had to pick it up. But that's all. But, I mean, you sold it, too, because I, I think that's kind of interesting to watch his reaction because there's excitement, but yet there's also, horror, you know, it turns to horror in a, in a really cool way. I don't remember quite what he said to get that out of us, but I, I was aware it was necessary to really imagine for yourself what, what, what try, try and interpret what he was saying and say, oh, well, the line says you're so beautiful, and then it becomes a thing of horror. Well, that was a very interesting thing to play, you know, mm -hmm. so that it wasn't just horror immediately. It was something that I've always wanted to see, and now I'm going to see it, and oh, my God, it's going to eat me. <laughs> so when you watch the fully first, you know, when, when it's fully done and you're watching that at the premiere, wherever you saw it, and you watch your head explode, what, what was, you know, what was that like, watching that whole, the scene play out, you know, finally finished? By the time I got first watching it, I, I had lost any sort of critical sense about it. <laughs> Later on in the next few years, whenever I saw it, I always thought, oh, we could perhaps have done something a bit different if it if had been more modern with that sequence. But for its time, and it still works fine, doesn't it? I mean, you mm -hmm. actually don't question it. You still think, yeah, sure, spirits come out like that and shoot through guns and shoot through camera lenses. And why not? I don't think it worked work as well the same the same CG because because they're physical and you because you know you have face melting, your head explodes. It's it's much more visceral, you know, figuratively and, and, and you know and so you mean it's better in the on a big screen? I think the physical the practical effects work so much better than CG because you know, it looks so much better with your head actually exploding rather than like, you know, somebody like right now, if they did it, it would it would be like a computer generated head or like, yeah, a, you're you right. know, you're right. And also a very clever touch to make the three heads explode in completely different ways. I think mm -hmm. Wolf just melts, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think yeah. Ronnie's head sort of splits apart. If I remember his jaw drops in it. I can't quite remember. Yeah, yeah. He was a wonderful actor. Did you know Died him before? Yeah, yeah, I knew him before. Ronnie Lacey, my first wife had worked with him a bit, so I knew him then. Very, very funny man, very witty man. He wasn't well during the shooting. Lovely man. I worked with his daughter, very nice person. Was there ever talk of bringing Billock back? You know, I, I, either for Temple of Doom. Talk, yeah, there was talk about doing a prequel. But it didn't lead anywhere. I never heard any more about it. It was sort of around and about and uh, disappeared. Well, and what was, you know, the aftermath for you and, and just like, you know, the, how well that movie received, how you became, you know, you became a lot more well-known probably afterward. You know, what was that after, you know, what was the aftermath like for you? I mean, did you enjoy kind of like the ride it took you on? Well, uh, there were sort of two opposing things went on. One was that a made an enormous difference to my career to a really successful movie like that. And I got um, some, some really nice work from it. And that's continued over the years. I mean, the, for, for a while, I used to go meet directors and they'd say, oh, I loved you in that part. And then they'd, I'd meet directors and they'd say, oh, I saw you in that part when I was at school. And now <laughs> I have to say, well, I, I've never got around to seeing Raiders yet, but I, I do intend to. Hey, you have to see it, man. <laughs> right. But the other part of it is that it also meant for a long time I was 
offered Germans, Nazis. Mm -hmm. And I played them for a while until I finally got so fed up with it. I, I felt I was auditioning to play Hitler, finally, you know. <laughs> there was a one year, I think, when I played a couple of commandants of um, concentration camps or something, and I thought, enough, no more of this. I did want to ask about your my, your, my, my second favorite role you ever did was Reverend Shooter in <laughs> Hot Fuzz. That like because I you know I've, I've, I saw without a clue I saw a lot of your stuff over the years as I grew up but Hot Fuzz was just like that is such a great role for you just and and just everybody in that everybody's so well cast. Have you ever counted the number of gags that there are in it? No, it's it's endless. I, it's I don't think endless. I can count it. Every time I go through it and think, oh, well, I, I now know every gag there is in the film because I really pay attention. It makes me mm -hmm. laugh so much. There's always one I have missed, you know. What um you know what was your experience like making that and being around like you know Timothy and and and, and Nick and Simon and Edgar and just all those guys? It was such fun because you know, all those guys who there were my age. We were all in the same generation coming up through mm -hmm. the British theatre. I think I'd worked with all of them before. Some of them, Ken Cranham was in it, who's a really old friend. We've known each other since our first time in acting school together just briefly, we passed. He, he decided he decided my acting school wasn't good enough and he went to a better one. <laughs> but with a lot of those people, I know them all so well. It was such fun. I didn't know the younger people. I didn't know Stephen and Edgar before, but they were so, it couldn't have been easy. It was a really lovely shoot. Fantastic. And what, what are, are you, do you have anything next? Or are you, you, were, are you working on anything? Yeah, no, or? no, no. I, I'm, I've got to, oh, I have to retake the COVID test down here so I can go back to the UK in a couple of weeks. And then I'm shooting a CBS series called Tinkertown in July. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, me too. It's a very good script. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you taking time. Ron, nice to meet you. All right. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Okay, listeners, it's your turn. What's your favorite Raiders memory? Did your parents let you watch Nazi faces melt when you were a kid? Let's talk about it on Twitter. You can find us at Mothership Pod, or you can tweet at us directly. I'm at Brett Molina 23. I'm at Brian Truitt. And don't forget, you can email us too. We're at MothershipPod at USAToday.com. We'll wrap it up this week. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to our pilot slash producer of the Mothership this week, Adam Fish. If you like the podcast and don't want to miss an episode moving forward, you can subscribe to the Mothership for free on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, please, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps other people find the show and we get some great feedback. If Apple Podcasts isn't your thing, you can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next week, nerds out. Later.